I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. Steve Hendricks is a freelance reporter and author, most recently of The Oldest Cure in the World, Adventures in the Art and Science of Fasting. One of his previous books, The Unquiet Grave, The FBI and the Struggle for the Soul of Indian Country, made several best of the year lists. He has written about fasting for Harper's, aphrodisiac hunting for Outside, soccer for Slate, and books for The Washington Post. He lives in Boulder, Colorado, with his wife, a law professor, and dog, a border lab. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Michael. Well, what a coincidence, because I think it's pretty great to be with you. (laughs) Now, Steve, in some ways, I feel like this is a conversation that is a decade in the making, at least for me. It has now been about 10 years, almost to the day, since I first read your essay for Harper's Magazine, entitled Starving Your Way to Vigor, The Benefits of an Empty Stomach. Now, in that essay, you plot an A and B story of sorts. The A story being an abridged history of fasting in America in the 19th and 20th centuries, and your own experience fasting for just a few hours short of 20 days, going from a weight that you say was, quote, somewhere in the loftier 160s, end quote, to, by your journey's end, a sinewy 135. Now, your essay couldn't have come at a better time in my life. I had just gone through (laughs) a rather... uh, to put it lightly, I guess, uh, emotionally taxing and disorienting breakup. And I think partially because of that event was a bit uh, a bit heftier than I otherwise would be. Now, when it comes to food, I've always been of the mind that almost anything is worth trying at least once. Otherwise, how am I <laughs> to know if I like it or not? So I figured after reading your essay, if I'm open-minded when it comes to eating food, why shouldn't I be open-minded about not eating it? So with your Harper's piece as inspiration and guide, I fasted for seven days. And with that fast came a sense of calm and a feeling of control that I very much needed at that particular time in my life. And the few pounds of weight loss, I guess you could say, was an added bonus. So before we dive in to your new book on the same topic, I just want to say, Steve, thanks for writing that essay all those years ago. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad to hear that it helped you, Michael. Your reaction was one that I've had a lot of, and it's the reason I ended up writing this book 10 years later. Of all the pieces that I've written, both articles and the two other books that I've written, this is the one that I keep hearing from readers over the years, and their stories very similar to yours. For one reason or another, maybe they had weight to lose, maybe they uh, had some stresses in their life, they wanted this feeling of calm that you talk about, that's a very common reaction that people have during fasting. Uh, Maybe they were ill and had heard that fasting could help with certain kinds of illnesses, Um, but for whatever reason, people have kept fasting, and as most of your listeners probably know, fasting has become extremely trendier and much more popular. The science on it has blossomed. So yeah, over the last 10 years, the phenomenon of fasting has really taken off. Yes, the landscape around fasting has changed quite a bit in the last decade. And I would say in at least some small part because of the essay wrote for Harper's. And I would imagine, and we'll get into this through the course of our conversation, that one of the reasons that people have that reaction to fasting, right, and almost kind of an evangelical (laughs) reaction after they do it is because historically it has been so little discussed and yet it is so simple that it almost causes a a cognitive kind of dissonance and almost a kind of religious reaction (laughs) in the person who's, who's undertaken it because they think to themselves, at least this is what I thought to myself, and perhaps you share a similar story, that when you do it 
and you realize the benefits that come with it and that it's not nearly as scary and crazy as some would make it out to be, you kind of start questioning a whole lot of things. It's it's almost like a part of your brain gets kind of unlocked and you you start to question a lot of what you would consider contemporary knowledge around health. Absolutely. I mean, it, and you're right, you're right. You've hit on something that's extremely counterintuitive, isn't it? And the idea that not eating could be healthy. I mean, we were, we were raised, of course, to think just the opposite. And in most instances, it is true. Obviously, you need nutrition to survive. If you don't eat, you starve, you die. But this very counterintuitive notion, once you have done it yourself and grasped it, then yes, a lot of people do have this almost, as you say, evangelical response. You know, the, the thing about it is, is that most people think, oh my God, you know, if I were to go two days, three days, <laughs> a week, three weeks, whatever it is without food, yeah. I would just be ravenous, right? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that when you fast, and we're now we're talking about prolonged fasting here, there are two kinds of fasting. There's the daily fasting, which we can get to, which is, you know, just not eating for a certain number of hours each day, usually overnight. And then there's prolonged fasting, which is fasting for more than a day. And that's what we're talking about. When you do prolonged fasting, you um, burn your fat, your fat breaks down into one of the byproducts of it is ketone bodies, these ketones suppress hunger. So after about, you know, I'd be interested in hearing what your experience was. But for most people, after the first or second day, they're just no longer hungry. Um, And that is what makes this completely doable, these longer fasts. And people often find that when they are freed from their hunger, a couple of things happen. One, you're just not spending the time, you know, making food. You're not thinking about food. For a lot of people who have a troubled relationship with food, it becomes very freeing, sort of, you know, almost astonishingly to them often. Um, And that was certainly my experience with it. It turned out that I had first tried caloric restriction, which is just simply eating less each day. That is devilishly hard uh, to to <laughs> constantly restrict your diet. To eat nothing turned out to be vastly easier. Yes, it is. It's shocking to most people. Certainly was to me. It sounds so counterintuitive because in almost any other area of life, it would be counterintuitive. If someone went to you and said, hey, you've never run before. I know that the first mile of your run today is going to be difficult, but as you get to mile two, three, and four, and five, and 10, and 20, it's only going to become easier. I think someone would (laughs) laugh in your face because it would be obviously untrue. But when it comes to fasting, you're absolutely right. Are you familiar with the comic Watchmen? Oh, yes. Yes, I am. Okay. So there's this character, and, and this is going to sound a little ridiculous to anyone who has not experienced fasting, but I feel like this is a safe space to share it. There's a character in, in the graphic novel called Dr. Manhattan, right? And he becomes blasted into a million atoms in an experiment gone wrong, totally classic comic narrative. And then he kind of spends the rest of his life kind of detached from humanity after he reconstructs the atoms of himself because he no longer feels human. And so he spends a lot of his days on Mars, looking at Earth, feeling a a disconnection and a distance from humanity because what he used to experience as a human, he no longer does, right? Now, this is a rather extreme example, but when I first fasted, and again, my first fast was seven days. I've done ones as short as four days and ones as long as 10, never as long as 20, but perhaps one day. And by day five, I would say of my first fast, I began to feel a bit like Dr. Manhattan in that I would be walking around, I'd see all of these, all of a sudden, I began to notice how many billboards there were, how many commercials there were, how many bus signs there were, how many bumper stickers, photographs of food advertisement there was everywhere. 
And I also became extremely aware of how almost every example of socialization that I could think of, every single time I would hang out with a friend, every time I would go out with family, a coworker, a colleague, it always had something to do with consuming calories. I would dare the listener to think of the last time that they went out with a friend or a loved one and didn't eat some kind of calorie. And I became acutely aware of this as I was on day five. And I began to feel, um, I realize this sounds so ridiculous and up my own butt, but I began to feel like this kind of disconnection. And the more days I went without eating, the less I felt I ever needed to eat again. <laughs> and I, by the time the end of the seventh day came around, I went through kind of a similar experience that you did on day 20. I want to use this as a transition to get to your first long-term fasting experience back about a decade ago. The only reason I began again was because I missed life. <laughs> I missed hanging out with my friends and family. I missed feeling part of humanity. But really, by the time I got to day five, it felt like, okay, I could just keep doing this. It was really the first day or two as my body was burning through its glycogen stores. Those were absolutely brutal. And I would imagine that that's why when a lot of people think about fasting, they think of that one time they had to go a day or half a day without eating and that kind of aching hunger that like eats away at the inside of your guts. Um, and they think, oh, I don't know if I can do that for two, three, four, ten 10 days. But I think a lot of folks, and I imagine yourself included, thought that that was how it was going to be, but it's not like that at all, right? That's correct. You know, you've hit on something that people who have fasted, and I mean virtually all cultures have have done this for over the last, well, since ever since the written word, we know this was the case. The separateness that you speak of, that feeling of standing outside of your culture and looking back in at it while fasting is something that sages through the ages, and for that matter, not just sages, but ordinary, you know, people who were mostly in search of a religious experience. Your experience is one that's much more secular, looking around and seeing all the advertising and all the social occasions and so on that involve food. Nonetheless, distancing yourself from uh, something that is just a very habitual, very ordinary part of life lets you look at your life through a different lens, which I think is why there was such a trend in so many uh, religions uh, in all parts of the world to harness fasting as this tool to, in their eyes, most people in the past, to get closer to God. But part of what that getting closer to God was doing was getting them further away from their ordinary reality. And that's why fasting is, uh, with the exception of maybe Zoroastrianism, a part, large or small, depending upon the religion, but a part of almost every major religion in the world. Now, yes, that thing that you're talking about, about the gnawing hunger that you get, um, for people who haven't fasted before, that's very common. Um, if you've if you fasted often, quite typically, uh, that hunger, even in the first you know day or two, you just don't feel it anymore. It's like someone who's exercised frequently. Uh, the first you know fifteen minutes of the workout is not as grueling as it is for someone who has never exercised before. And part of what what you had mentioned is correct that diminishing of your glycogen stores when they run out. Um, glycogen is just the stored sugar. It's a chains of glucose that we pull out of our food um, and is tucked away in our muscles and in our liver and used in reserve when we when we need energy. Once we run through all the glucose from our food and all the glycogen that we've got stored, yeah, that's when you're going to get that gnawing hunger. Those first couple of days, though, can also be difficult because as your body is making the transition from running on its normal fuel, its preferred fuel is glucose, sugar from our from our food. 
to running on its own fat stores, there is a period in there of a, of a couple of days or so where your body breaks down some of its own protein, which can sound very scary to people because they imagine their muscles being um, devoured, which is not the case. There are proteins all throughout your bodies. I've heard that a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's a, com- it's a common fear. It does not appear to be true. But, you know, your body doesn't want to turn protein into glucose to burn for fuel. It's a very inefficient process. It can't just burn protein for fuel. It has to turn it into glucose that can then be used by your cells, including most importantly, the cells of your brain, which really prefers to run on glucose. As it's you know making this transition from burning glucose to burning fat and, and in that transition b- burning this protein, it takes a fair amount of metabolic effort and that can be very difficult for people who haven't gone through it. So yes, if you've never fasted before, this period of what's called protein catabolism can also, in addition to the hunger that you're feeling and having run out of glycogen, that can also make that transition a little bit harder. Most people don't find it all that unbearable. Um, your description of brutal, yeah, some people do find it that way. Other people just find it mildly uncomfortable, but it does vary quite a lot. Yes. Now, before we get to the the history of fasting, which goes as far back as 1500 BC in India, I want to learn a little bit more about your first experience with that 20-day fast and what that was like for you and what some of the reactions you got. I think one of your colleagues called you an extremist while she was eating whipped cream. Do I have that right? <laughs> yeah, I believe she had a, um, it was a, at a Sunday brunch and I was drinking water and she was tucking into a stack of waffles or pancakes or something with whipped cream and sausage and so on. Yeah. Quite the visual. You know, people have often a very visceral reaction to fasting. Point in case, I don't mean to pick on this particular person. I, I, I will discuss her just as a sort of a type. You know, what I, what I found as I fasted and got deeper into my fast was almost everyone, and it's especially true for women who have, you know, so many uh, judgments cast upon their bodies, but almost mm. everyone in our society, because most of us are or have been overweight, um, have struggled with food. And as you begin to, um, you know, you fast, if you go long enough, you start to lose weight, your friends start to notice. Um, What I found was other people who had also struggled and not found a happy solution often felt very threatened by fasting. It was, mm. it was very sad to me. And at that time, I was very unskilled in, and very defensive <laughs> and not very helpful. I, you know, there are plenty of great responses you could give to, to basically say, well, this is a tool that you might consider using that might help you out for reasons we can get to. I don't think that fasting is actually great as a, as a weight loss tool by itself. But, you know, it, it is one possible tool that you can use um, and you don't need to be, you know, threatened by it. But, but many people sort of took it as a judgment upon themselves um, of their failure to lose the weight that they had wanted to lose. And so we're sort of intimidated in, in that kind of stereotypical um, cliched way of like, you know, the crabs in the bucket. Yes. You know, I was the crab who is, had escaped the bucket <laughs> and the other crabs wanted to pull me back in. It was very sad. It was very educational for me because what it spoke to me about was, gosh, these people are suffering so much with their own self-image. They're threatened by, you know, my succeeding in, in losing this weight. But to go back to the start of the fast, I, I had been a, uh, a runner in my youth and had torn up uh, a knee. And so that went out the window. And as I, as my level of exercise declined uh, and I wasn't the healthiest eater, um, you know, I, I did what most people do. I put on a pound or two a year, which isn't much at first, but by the time you hit, 
you know, 35 or so, you start to weigh 30 or 40 pounds more than you did when you were in high school and college. Oh, uh, yeah. Right. You know, this, you, <laughs> you know, the story, we all know the story, right? Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it happens. And that's, and that's why two thirds to three quarters of Americans are overweight with about half of those being obese. And uh, I, at the time, I cast about looking for ways to shed this weight. And I, I, well, I cast about for two reasons. One, to shed the weight. Two, I also have a very acute fear of death. And I would like to put off my rendezvous with the Grim Reaper as long as possible. And so I had been looking at the science of longevity. And as it happens, one of the just, you know, longest proven, best known, scientifically unquestionable ways to increase longevity in virtually every animal species ever studied is caloric restriction, simply eating less, as I had mentioned before. Unfortunately, that is devilishly, as I've said, hard to do. And so after trying caloric restriction for a while, both sort of out of curiosity about the longevity and health aspects, but also trying to lose weight, I decided this was ridiculous. But in the process of uh, doing that, I had also uh, came across these weird, and to me they were at the time, just bizarre claims that f fasting not only made you healthier, but uh, certainly in lab animals, increased lifespan. There were these studies, for example, if you take these, these date to the 1980s, you take lab rats, you feed them normally on their mother's breast milk and then wean them. And from that point on, you fast them every other day of their lives. So they have food available 24 hours and it's taken away the next 24 hours. In one study, these rats lived 83% longer. It nearly doubled their lifespan. In humans, that would be the equivalent of living 143 years. So, uh, you know, I, I read study, study after study about this. There weren't many at the time. Um, one of the reasons I've written the book now is because of this explosion in the science that I thought there was enough science to, to offer a good book about it. But at the time, there was enough to very much intrigue me. So I tried fasting. And I had, I would say, a very common reaction, which is people who do prolonged fasts sometimes describe having an extremely euphoric uh, reaction, feeling just out of this world good. And also being hyperactive, very productive in whatever work it is that they do. Other people uh, describe being extremely lethargic. They can, you know, hardly get up off the couch and, um, you know, lifting their toothbrush to <laughs> brush their teeth is exhausting. Um, and I had the full range of that. I had some days where I would feel just as good as I ever, you know, could possibly be. Uh, and other days where I just felt very draggy and slow. But the thing that, you know, kept me going at that point was I wanted to lose about 25 pounds. Uh, and day after day, you know, you'd get on the scale. And at night, most days, you'd lose anywhere from, you know, say three quarters to two and a half pounds. Um, and for someone, you know, who at that point, I was very, you know, weight motivated and wanting to get that off. Um, that kept me going through all the, you know, lethargic stages. And I also knew from the research that I'd read, I had no way of testing this, um, that as I was fasting, I was unleashing repair mechanisms in my cells that if the effects in humans play out as well as the research does in lab animals was going to probably protect me from various diseases and quite possibly uh, extend my lifespan a little bit. So all of that kept me going. But yes, the reactions from people who I told that I was fasting was extremely interesting and revealed a lot of both, I thought, 
unnecessary concern, very understandable concern, but unnecessary concern, and a lot of confusion and quite understandable ignorance about fasting. And that's why I ended up writing that article for Harper's that I did, because I thought there was a lot here that folks needed to know. And about what age were you when you wrote that article? Was it early 40s? So that was late 30s. Yeah, I was nearly 40. Because fasting has become even more personal for you since then. And I wanted to hark back to something you just said about how, you know, you rightly observed that fasting can protect us from disease and extend our lifespans. And so even then, when you were doing your your first 20-day fast, as you were in your late 30s, and you were beginning to understand the benefits of fasting in in that medical regard, I want to explore with you what happened in that 10-year span that took you from that first fast where you understood the medical benefits of it to what you later describe in the book as, quote, I approached 50 in a welter of anguish and lethargy. I had run through everything on offer from conventional and alternative medicine. My career had ground to a halt, and most days the best I could hope for with family and friends was a negative good. Not growling at one, not letting another down. I felt snared in a trap, and I was certain I could hear the heavy footsteps of the hunter drawing near, end quote. And that quote is describing this battle with illness, hypersomnia, and other ailments that you were experiencing in your your mid to late 40s up until 50 that was ultimately relieved by fasting. And I guess I want to explore with you that process. You describe it in the book, but I'd love for you to share it with our listeners, how you came to kind of almost forget the medical benefits of fasting that you read about and studied in your late 30s and early 40s, and then how that ultimately came to I guess I don't want to be too hyperbolic here, but in many ways kind of save your life, at least uh, from a mental and emotional standpoint, and really improve your health as you approach 50. Yeah. So to start with, you're right. My health had begun deteriorating, gosh, as long ago as my 20s when I look back on it and understand what was going on. It would be nice to report exactly that after that long fast in my late 30s that I had, you know, adopted fasting as a regular habit. Um, because I was aware that its uh, medical benefits, although unseen to me, were in fact taking place in in my cells, and therefore I fasted regularly. It really didn't happen. And so, yes, I did have this decline. The decline was basically this. So, in my uh, 20s, starting about the time I was in college, um, I began to have trouble staying awake sometimes, but mostly just having energy. I would sit down to read and wouldn't have the energy to complete the reading I was doing. Later, when I got out of school and I became a writer, I would uh, you know, try to write and my mind would get muddled. It would be, uh, my whole body would be too fatigued. I couldn't focus on what I was doing. As this was happening, depression was mounting and I would have these episodes of very severe, you know, almost suicidal. We're talking some some very desperate depression. And, you know, all of these things would flare up in very acute bouts and then they would go away uh, for periods of time. The depression was basically kept in check sort of, (laughs) uh, by uh, antidepressant medications, which I had been on from the time I was 22 until the time I was about 50. So, you know, you could sort of say that one was kind of under control, but it would still flare up. But the one thing, well, there were a couple of rare diseases that I uh, suffered from that were not kept under control by any medications because the doctors didn't even know what caused them or the scientists, nor you know, what could possibly cure them. Because you were bouncing between specialist after specialist after specialist. The the way that you detail the great lengths that you went through year after year after year to try and find, if not a cure, at least an alleviation of the suffering you were going through. 
I mean, it sounds like such a nightmare. It was. It was exhausting and it was robbing me of my life. And yes, the worst of them was called idiopathic hypersomnia. Hypersomnia just means you want to sleep all the time. Idiopathic means the scientists do not know the cause of it. So the the worst, the people who have this condition in its worst form were truly, truly suffering. These are people who can sleep 20 hours a day and wake up completely unrefreshed. So the four hours that they're awake, they're stumbling around in that state that you and I and most more normal people would feel only in the minutes before you're about to fall asleep. That's their entire day now. Wow. Try to imagine, you know, parenting during that. Try to imagine doing a job with that sort of thing going on inside you. My form of it was much, much less horrid than that, but it was horrid enough, which is to say, you know, I didn't sleep 20 hours a night. I slept eight hours a night, but no matter what I slept, whether it was eight hours, four hours, or 12 hours, I always woke up exhausted. I went through the day completely exhausted. And the only thing that, you know, doctors have to offer you are stimulants. So things like Ritalin or Modafinil, which is a a pill that college kids know as a smart pill because it can keep you up all night studying. And sure enough, those those things can keep you awake, but they feel, you know, you will feel like you're uh, hopped up on amphetamines all day. Mm. You know, my hands would shake. Uh, I would be irritable beyond, <laughs> beyond words to convey to my wife and to my son. Um, you know, I was a terrible, frankly, uh, at times a terrible father, a terrible husband, a terrible friend, a terrible son, you know, you name it. And so, yeah, it was extraordinarily debilitating. It was, you know, every morning I got up and had a choice. Do I take this drug that's going to make me awful or do I not take the drug and I'm going to go through the day like a zombie and not be able to do anything? So, yeah, so over the years, my um, conditions got worse and worse. The depression got worse. The hypersomnia got worse. I had two or three other, you know, conditions that were also (laughs) extremely disturbing. They got worse. And part of the reason that I'd never once, uh, it sounds ridiculous to say now, but never once thought of fasting as a as an answer for this, is because when you look back over the history, particularly the last 200 years where we have some really good fasting doctors writing about their work, and then more recently fasting research, it tends not to be used for psychiatric conditions. It tends not to be used for neurological, well, at least not, you know, mental health conditions. It tends to be used for somatic, which is to say bodily conditions. So fasting is a fantastic way of reversing, sometimes even entirely curing high blood pressure. It's a way of getting rid of childhood epilepsy quite often. It's a way of reversing diabetes. It's a way of reversing other forms of cardiovascular disease, not just high blood pressure, angina, for instance. I mean, I could go down a whole long list of probably 40 or 50 conditions that we have really good clinical observations or scientific trials um, showing that fasting can reverse. But uh, not until I started, you know, getting into this book did I learn in a few places here and there People also found, meaning fasting doctors and and uh, DIY, you know, do it at home um, patients, uh, that fasting could also work wonders sometimes for some types of mental health issues. And you know, had I had I known that, perhaps I would have tried fasting for these conditions sooner. Also, it wasn't as though I never fasted. I did fast occasionally over the years after my 20-day fast um, back a dozen years ago, and it never really helped. But then something changed. I have some ideas about why it changed, but to make a long story short, then I did do one fast a few years back that did just completely send 
virtually all of these conditions of mine, all these problems of mine into remission. There's a couple things there that really stand out. One, I can understand why, even today, a lot of us make the disconnect between the body and the mind, either because of personal religious convictions or not even always religion, but just kind of how human beings think of the brain and the body as two separate things, when in fact, they are one in the same. <laughs> I mean, the brain is part of the body. I too have made kind of similar errors in how I think about my mind and the rest of me. And two, I would imagine that a lot of it comes down to length. In 2012, when I fasted for seven days, I, I wasn't really, um, I've struggled with depression myself. Starting around my mid-20s was when I had, I guess, what you could call my first episode. And then when I fasted for the first time in 2012, I was 29, and I, I wasn't really depressed at the time. But about a year or so later, my depression came like roaring back. And over the last decade or so, I guess nine years, I've been on and off at various points on Lexapro, Zoloft, most recently Prozac. I'll tell you, Steve, when I did my 10-day fast, it was around day seven or eight when I suddenly realized that my depression was gone. I knew that it had nothing to do with the medication because I was going through a period where I, was, I had cycled off the Prozac. I would go through a period of cycling on and off because I realized that if I was on Prozac for too long or on any kind of antidepressant for too long, it started to um, lose its efficacy. Yep. So just by happenstance, I was in a period of having cycled off the Prozac. And I was doing well enough managing my depression with the lessons I learned from cognitive behavioral therapy and whatnot. But it was literally one of those things, and I imagine you have experienced this yourself, where you only realize the depression has alleviated by noticing, and this is hard to notice, by noticing its absence. And noticing the absence of a thing is actually quite a bit harder than noticing the presence of a thing. And it was around day eight when I realized, wait a second. Not only have I not experienced any depression, but like my mind feels, and this is another side effect of fasting, my mind feels absolutely clear. But I think it was only once I had broken through the seven-day period, which is when I really started to notice that result in my mind. I want to end this talk discussing Yvonne Vielman, who you actually start the book with. But a lot of the benefits of fasting, either in mind or body, come when you really break through that first week and get into the second and third, right? The short answer is yes, you're absolutely right. The longer, more complicated answer is it's highly dependent upon the condition. Now, we should be a little cautious here. Fasting is not a cure-all. Yes. It's not going to fix everyone's depression. It's not going to fix everyone's even idiopathic hypersomnia or rheumatoid arthritis just because it fixes one person's doesn't necessarily mean it will fix another's. It also depends on how long you have had the condition. It depends on many other factors about your health. We're complex organisms. These diseases often have complex origins. So, but as a rule of thumb, yes, you quite often have to fast longer if you have a particularly persistent or particularly pernicious condition. There are a handful of fasting clinics uh, in the United States and uh, many more in Europe. You might find two people fasting side by side who both have depression or both have rheumatoid arthritis or both have fibromyalgia. They've both had it for the same length of time. They're both the same age. They seem, you know, it seems all the same. And it, it may take one person a fast of 10 days to get over it. It may take another person you know, three fasts of three weeks each scattered over three years to get rid of it. Mm. So it's highly variable. And without going, you know, too deep into this, and I'll let us move on here. But, you know, one of the other pieces is, and this was something that I did not learn, but should have, because the information was there before me after my 20-day fast, um, was one of the reasons that fasting works is it is fixing 
what you are doing wrong with your diet. Mm. So if to the extent that you have are, have already moved towards a healthier diet, and long story short is plants, <laughs> it's diets heavily based in plants that seem to do the trick. To the extent that you have moved more in that direction, you can probably, you know, get away with shorter fasts. More importantly, though, is, you know, and this was a mistake that I certainly made, you can have a fast that will, you know, perhaps help you lose weight, will help at least partially, maybe wholly reverse some sort of disease or illness that you have. Great, fantastic. If you go back to eating the same things you ate before you did your fast, you're probably going to regain that awful condition that you've gotten rid of by your fast. And this isn't just something that, you know, I have experienced and therefore I'm saying this is based on what fasting doctors over the last 150, 200 years have found and in the last 10 to 20 years is increasingly being verified in laboratory science, which is to say, yeah, fasting can cure, but you have to change the conditions that led to the disease in the first place. And if you don't do that, that cure is not going to last in most cases. Yes, that's absolutely right. And I want to yes and something you said earlier that fasting is not a cure-all. You go into great detail in the book. There are many diseases and ailments and conditions that fasting does not affect. Um, and that even when there are conditions that it does alleviate, it might not work in everybody. I think the big T takeaway <laughs> that I would want our listeners to take from this talk once we're done, you should think of fasting as one of many medications in a cabinet if you're thinking of an image. The thing that you go to in great detail in the book is that for so long in our history, even if it goes back again, and I'd love for you to speak on this as far back as 1500 BC, for too long, it's been, you know, a kind of medication you could say in the cabinet that has been off to the side that doctors have just simply ignored. Fasting might not be the cure or it might not work for every single person with an ailment, but in the same way that Wellbutrin, for instance, didn't work for my mind while Lexapro and Prozac did. But I think we need to get to a place as a society, and it seems like we're going in that direction, where it should be a tool in the tool belt that should at least be considered when people are struggling with different ailments, either of the mind or the body. Yes, I, I mean, I would agree emphatically with that. And I would only add that diet should be the other piece to it. Yes. And that we have, you know, a number of diseases today, almost all of our leading killers, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, various metabolic disorders. Go go down the list of our top 10 diseases. And if you read the science, to me, the best science is suggesting that 80% of those or more perhaps are due to what we're eating. So there are two big tools that we are ignoring. One is our diet and the other, I believe you're right, is fasting. Let's go back in time about, I guess you could say 3,500 or so years ago to the first time that fasting is at least written down in the record. What was fasting like in pre-Hindu India in 1500 BC? Why were people doing it? What was the population's relationship with fasting like at that time? So it was purely religious. One of the almost universally consistent things in the first, you know, thousand years or so of uh, records that we have of, you know, where fasting shows up in ancient writings, as you say, starting up about 1500 BC or so, is that it's always done for religion. No one's doing it for health. And so the first place that it really does appear, you're right, is in India in the Vedic religion, which was the religion that gave rise to Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, the other major religions of India. And the, the way that fasting was done there, it took the form of these monthly days, there were multiple days each month that were called Upavasathas. And on these days, these were days set aside where there would be no work, 
there would be no sex, and there would be no food. They were days to give contemplation to and thanks to the gods, particularly the gods of the hearth who had uh, looked over and protected the home throughout throughout the year. And um, there were we don't know exactly how many days there were each month, but there were a few. And it appears that over time they tended to grow. And that, that's a thing that is common to all religions where fasting takes root. Mm. Is and and various religions deal with this in different ways. And it makes sense because if you think about it, if fasting is a way of being more holy, it's a way of getting closer to God, it's a way of getting apart from your ordinary life and being more contemplative. And and sometimes, you know, if, particularly if you're fasting without water in a hot climate or something, you can even hallucinate, um, which they would have interpreted as, you know, portents and omens and signs from the gods. Um, if you're having one of these experiences and a with a little bit of fasting, then why not do a lot more fasting? So, as time went on, the number of these monthly fasting days in the Vedic religion appears to have grown, and we certainly see that by the time Hinduism emerges from the uh, the Vedics. These Upavasathas just really took off, and eventually you get calendars, Hindu calendars, ancient Hindu calendars, with as many as 140 days of fasting in them. And fasting, we should say, in various places at various times, meant different things. It might mean going without food and water from sundown to sundown. That would be sort of the harshest thing. There might be a version where you would have water but not food, or you would have water and you would do a little bit of light eating but not really a real meal. So fasting might have meant not entirely going 140 full days of the year completely without food, but nonetheless... It was still a restriction on eating on some kind, and these religions, you know, felt that this brought the people who were doing the fasting closer to their version of God. Yeah, there's a quote from the uh, Mahabharata. I realize I'm probably butchering the pronunciation there, but there was a quote there. It says, it was by fasts that the deities had succeeded in becoming denizens of heaven. It is by fasts that the rishis have attained to high success, end quote. And you go on to write that fasting was so commendable in that book that just telling someone how to fast earned the teller a holy reward. Quote, the man who teaches another the merits of fasts has never to suffer any kind of misery. The man who daily reads these ordinances about fasting or hears them read becomes freed from sins of every kind, end quote. Kind of a big deal. Indeed. And we have to remember is that at this time, and you know, this is certainly true of religions that most of your audience may be a little more familiar with, like Christianity and Judaism and Islam and so on, you know, all these religions were using various forms of asceticism as a training for the soul. So, you know, the Hindus were really the first of these, you know, almost holy athletes, you might think of them. They would deny themselves sleep, they would sleep outside uh, without any shelter. They would sleep on beds of thorns. They would walk around with no clothing. They would give up their family. And the idea was rarely suffering for suffering's sake. It was just this thinking that if you could endure these very difficult things, you made yourself more worthy and more holy. In the Hindu religion, that was all tied up with karma as well. This was sort of a way of earning good karma and burning off bad karma. And, you know, over time, some religions, Hinduism, uh, was one of them. The fasting element, it's still there, but it, it got moderated over the centuries. 
Buddhism, which emerged from this same milieu, also had to wrestle with this question as well. And the stories, the scriptures say that the Buddha had tried many of these ascetic forms, uh, including very, very extreme fasting, and then eventually rejected it. His idea was that this was just too big of a hindrance to uh, living the good life, and he chose very famously this path called the Middle Way, which was not too much of this ascetic suffering, but yet again, not too much luxury and indulgence as well. And in Buddhism, fasting emerges as this sort of kind of useful tool. If it helps you to do it in order to contemplate and um, achieve that peaceful mind and uh, lack of reactivity, uh, then by all means, fast. Uh, But if not, uh, there's no need to punish yourself. Jainism, the other major religion of India, went a completely different direction. In Jainism, the sort of background is life is sort of almost nothing but suffering or causing suffering because every living thing has a soul. So even just walking across the grass, uh, letting alone, you know, eating even just vegetables, forget animals, is inflicting harm on people. Mm. And the Jains had this idea that all organisms were composed of karma that were like atoms, which were mostly bad deeds and literally kept your soul imprisoned here on earth and kept it from flying up to its heavenly reward. And so for the Jains, fasting burned off bad karma. Mm. And so they took fasting to quite the extreme. So they have, for instance, this year-long fasting practice called Varshatop. And what happens is you eat nothing from um, sunrise of one day till sunset, 36 hours later. Then you eat that night, sort of like Muslims do at Ramadan. And then you start all over again in the morning with another 36-hour fast. You do that an entire year. That is... It's intense, right? (laughs) It's pretty extreme, yeah. The most intense form is this Jain practice called Salakana. And in Salakana, that's simply starvation unto death. When you have reached as much uh, enlightenment as you can hope to achieve in this life, when you have burned off as much bad karma as you can hope to have burned off, what's the point in living any longer? And you solve your predicament, this sort of cage you're living in of your body by starving it to death. And that still happens today. There are probably, you know, somewhere between 100 and 200, the estimates vary, of people who practice salakana as a way to end their lives. And it was interesting to see how fasting intersected with the different religions in ways that interacted with the very cultures of those religions. Pre-modernity Jewish relationship with fasting was often connected to their ongoing conversation with God in that they would fast preemptively in an effort to stave off a punishment from God himself. The idea that if I'm depriving myself, God, then hopefully you will deprive me of nothing or or perhaps deprive me of less because you can see that I am putting myself through a kind of suffering. Fasting evolved really interesting in Judaism. In in the earliest, you know, we, we don't know exactly which of the books of the Hebrew Bible were written first and second and so on, but we have a pretty good idea. And so from what we can tell, from the earliest days, fasting was just really sort of ad hoc. It was a response to crisis. It was uh, King David fasting after his ally Abner was killed, or Saul ordering his army to fast before they went in to fight the Philistines, or Hannah, who was infertile, fasting so that she could uh, have a child. But then after the fall of the first temple in 586 BC, you're right, the Jews fasted from then on out, pretty much exactly as what you're saying. They fasted to let God know how sorry they were for sinning. It was a way of saying, no need to, you know, send a plague upon our houses. 
And this got ritualized in the form of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, when you fast from sunset to sunset in order to uh, atone for your sins. Fasting was a very versatile tool that all of these cultures, as you say, could use for their own ends. And one of the, I think, most interesting passages when it came to fasting's relationship with early Christianity and Catholicism in particular was how certain forms of anorexia are caused by society's influences on them at various points in history. For instance, I think I would imagine that the listener is most familiar with the modern form of anorexia, which is anorexia nervosa. But something that was much more common in the time of early Christianity was called anorexia mirabilis, or holy anorexia. And you go into detail about how it was common among women who were pursuing a holy path in Christianity because so many other avenues of being fundamentally observant were foreclosed to women during that time, that one of the only ways that they could practice their religion in a fervent manner was through a kind of holy fasting. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, you're right. Women in the Middle Ages and and early Renaissance definitely fasted in part because that was what was open to them. They couldn't be wandering monks who would, you know, you know, go from town to town begging for their alms and so on. That was not in keeping with their womanly dignity. You know, was, many of them tried, but um, the men who ran the society, who ran the church, uh, denied them that opportunity. Fasting was one way they could practice a holy asceticism that was in keeping with what was available to them, the avenues that were open to them. However, one of the reasons that they fasted was also because they were made to believe that they should. And let me be completely clear about this, and I've certainly heard about this from many of my uh, women uh, friends, when it, much more commonly when I speak about fasting today to um, women than to men, I get questions about anorexia, and I get questions about, well, we've been told forever, you know, that we're not supposed to eat and so on. I was stunned to see how far back this went. And one of the almost universals about fasting where it took hold uh, is the men who made up the rules in these religions about fasting eventually decided that the female body was more in need of fasting than the male body. You find this in Hinduism, you know, practically, and it's it's true in most uh, Hindu families that I'm familiar with today, if the fasting still goes on, it's the mom who's doing the fasting, not the dad. So in Christianity, of course, you know, let's just be frank, there's a long and ugly history of misogyny. Paul demanded that women submit to men, and later thinkers, Christian theologians, fetishized, well, what they fetishized was female chastity, which was going to be the symbol of this submission to men. And then they enlisted fasting as the protector of female virginity. And they did this because fasting had a couple of great qualities from their eyes. Fasting dried up these moist humors inside people that was supposed to be what was behind female lust. And it could also, and they meant this quite literally, if you took it severely enough, if you fasted long enough and hard enough, it would wreck female beauty. It would wither breasts and it would pair hips and buttocks. The things that, you know, stirred male lust, the man being this, you know, holy creature that had been led into temptation by this evil succubus woman. I mean, it was just, it was horrifying. Uh, And so, church fathers propagated this for centuries, you know, meaning they told women and girls that it was their lot to fast as much and as brutally as they could. Their reward for doing so was that they would become brides of Christ 
in the afterlife. And they meant this rather literally. As I quote in the book, there are some pretty creepy erotic passages where they talk about, you know, the the bride of Christ, you know, who has fasted ascending and, you know, giving Christ all kinds of basically erotic and sexual pleasure. So, what you had is you had some, you know, over many centuries, you had some very charismatic women who took all of this dogma, all this doctrine to heart, and they fasted themselves to brutal lengths, some of them, you know, basically starving themselves to death. And that is this anorexia mirabilis, this holy anorexia that you referred to. Most women and girls didn't do that. But if you hold that up as the female ideal for really a millennium throughout Christian Europe and the Christian Near East, Middle East, what are you going to get? You're going to get girls and women who are doing that to some extent or who are going to feel like complete crap because they feel very guilty that they are not achieving that completely, you know, frankly, self-destructive end. It's not a pretty picture in the church's history. I have to say, it's not something that, although it's secularized today and you can't draw an exact straight line from anorexia mirabilis to uh, the current anorexia nervosa, you can draw some lines. And uh, I think it has uh, something to say to why women still feel the way they do about how men and society in general look at their bodies. Yeah, that was my big takeaway from that whole section. It seemed like when certain standards of quote-unquote beauty were forced onto women, either today in the 21st century or hundreds of years ago, or when certain avenues of life were foreclosed, that when only a few avenues are left to you and you are encouraged to pursue them to, as you were mentioning, deadly ends, it can lead to really bad incentives. I'm almost wary to call it fasting. Where does one draw the line between a fast and starvation? Because in a lot of these like anorexia mirabilis situations, like it doesn't even feel like fasting in the way that fasting is defined in the entirety of the rest of the book. This particular section really feels like starvation. This will probably answer a larger question the audience might be asking about fasting in general is where do you draw that line and what is the difference? Yeah, well, you're right. There's a, a big difference between religious fasting and therapeutic fasting. But this question about where does fasting become starvation can be answered mechanistically. There are a few ways you can look at what's going on inside the body, inside the cells. And to make it, you know, a fairly complicated question, fairly simple. So as I mentioned earlier, your body normally runs on glucose and glycogen. It runs out of those things. It burns a little bit of protein, and then it switches to burning almost entirely fat. You run on your fat stores until you run out of your fat stores. Well, what do you do then? At that point, your body starts eating its essential proteins like cardiac muscle, the muscle of your heart, and starts eating away at other organs, starts chewing away at your liver because it's got to, you know, get food from somewhere. That is the difference between fasting and starvation when you are no longer running off your reserves of stored fat and you are running off your essential organs and your essential proteins. Great. I appreciate you making that distinction because, again, I think to people who are unfamiliar with fasting, that fast and starvation might appear synonymous when really they aren't. Right. And I and I should probably add to that. So even a relatively, you know, thin person, you know, right now I'm fairly slender. I'm five foot nine, weigh 140 pounds. I probably would have a month of fasting to go before I entered starvation. And most, you know, Americans, as I said, most of us are overweight and obese would have months 
it takes a long time to get to that starvation level. However, of course, if you start out with no reserves because you've been abusing your body and fasting and fasting and you know not eating and so on for however many years or decades, yeah, it's not going to take you long to get to starvation. I think that's a perfect way to seg into, I think, one of the most fascinating stories that happened towards the end of the 19th century after the Civil War that you feature in both your Harper's essay and prominently in your new book, which is the story of Henry S. Tanner, the man who fasted for 42 days and quote unquote bested Christ. But there was a belief back then that I hear echoed today Literally, when I was fasting for 10 days several months ago and I told someone about it, and again, this is 2022, they were concerned that if I fasted for that long, I might die. I know that sounds silly to say, but this belief that we can only go several days without food before perishing was the same belief that existed in 18, I believe, 78, when Henry Tanner fasted for the first time. The belief among medical professionals at that time was that if you went for more than eight to 10 days without food, you would die. So can you walk us through the fascinating and at times quite hysterical story of Henry Tanner's two 40 plus day long fasts, first one that he did in private and then in public? Henry Tanner was what was known then as an eclectic doctor. Eclecticism was just a school of medicine. There were a whole bunch in the 19th century of competing schools. Some of them we know from today, like homeopathy or conventional medicine, which is what MDs, medical doctors were. But there were also, you know, hydropathic doctors whose practices were based on water and electrotherapy doctors whose practices were based on uh, electrical treatments. Eclecticism is what it sounds like. It was eclectic. It borrowed from a whole bunch of different schools. But it was sort of regarded about like a naturopath would be today. Uh, which is to say someone who's well outside of the mainstream and uh, conventional doctors looked down on eclectic doctors with disdain. In 1877, Henry Tanner had suffered a series of setbacks. He was then living in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and uh, he'd lost his wife. He'd had a Turkish bath business that had gone under. He tried to be a speaker as a, on the temperance circuit, the anti-drinking circuit, and that didn't go well. And he acquired several ailments that he sort of describes vaguely, but they kind of amount to a nervous breakdown, a cardiac problem, and one or two other things. And he decides that he's going to fast. And the record is unclear, but it seems like he thought his fasting would either cure him or kill him, and he didn't much care which it was. <laughs> so he repairs to, he has another friend who's an eclectic doctor, and he repairs to his house and doesn't eat for a week or 10 days. And as you had described with your fast and your depression, as I talk about with my experiences as well, somewhere along the way, I forget the exact day, but let's say six or seven days in, he notices his conditions are lifting and uh, he feels better than ever. And by about 10 days, he says, all right, this is great. I'm cured. I'm going to have some food. And he, he calls for a meal. And while the food is being prepared, he stops and he thinks, well, wait a minute, if I feel this good after this long, what happens if I try going longer? And how much longer could I go? Because according to conventional medicine, I should be dead about now. What he found was the longer he fasted, the more energized he felt. He had been in the habit of taking these long constitutionals, these long walks, and he resumed these and ended up, you know, walking miles and miles a day as the weeks went on. You know, he would walk 15 miles in a day fasting, which was completely unprecedented. No one had ever done this kind of thing before. So he ends up, as you say, fasting 41 days in 1877 in Minneapolis before he finally breaks his fast. 
What's interesting is, in light of later events, because he turns out to be quite the showman, for lack of a better word, he doesn't publicize his fast. But his friend, whose house he had fasted in, was astonished and said, the world needs to know about this. So he, his friend, publishes an account of his fast. Uh, They're both widely ridiculed. The account was published first in a Chicago journal. The citizens of Minneapolis and St. Paul are roundly, you know, lampooning and criticizing these two doctors for bringing shame upon their metropolis. (laughs) And to make a long story short, um, where this all comes to a head is a few years later in New York, there is a woman whose name is Molly Fancher. And Molly Fancher had claimed for many years to have gone without eating almost anything whatsoever. She would take, you know, I don't know, a few crumbs uh, every couple of months or something. She had had an accident when she was a young woman uh, and had been bedridden ever since. And with her bedriddenness came supposedly powers of clairvoyance. So she could read texts, for instance, that she had never seen, you know, something that was written and sealed inside an envelope, supposedly. And she had these other powers, one of which was going without food. There was a big brouhaha in the New York newspapers between her and this very prominent uh, neurologist, a doctor named William Hammond, who had formerly been the Surgeon General of the United States. And they came to loggerheads Uh, where Hammond basically dared her to fast under observation of medical men, and she demurred. She said it would not be appropriate to fast under the examination of male doctors. So Henry Tanner out in Minneapolis hears about this and says, well, I will come to New York and fast. I will show you that this can be done. It ends up being quite the comic scene, this bumpkin doctor from the sticks questioning the, you know, establishment figure of this very prominent doctor in New York. And when they eventually can't agree to terms for a fast, he sets out on his own, arranges for a set of watchers at an alternative medical college called the United States Medical College there in Manhattan, and ends up before a crowd that is tiny at first, but eventually grows and captures the the fascination of not just the entire country, but the entire world, by the time he breaks his fast after 40 days, it's being reported in newspapers in, you know, not just London and Paris, but Africa and Singapore and wherever else. Yeah, people were dancing in the streets. Well, for instance, when he broke his fast, the hall that he fasted in this lecture hall of this medical college, and it held however many hundreds of people that it held, but there were, I don't know, a thousand or so people who were gathered outside in the street just to hear the news, you know, it wasn't like they could see anything, that he had broken his fast and to maybe catch a glimpse of him as he, you know, passed by a window or something. And sure enough, yes, when he left the lecture hall triumphantly, little kids chased his carriage for blocks and it took him, I don't know how long to get out of the throng, every single one of whom needed to shake his hand with both their hands. Yeah, it was it was pandemonium. Uh, One of my favorite details of this story is how he would get letters during his fast from female suitors. And when these women were interviewed about why they would be attracted to a man who was going for weeks and weeks without eating, one of them commented that it would save them time cooking. Absolutely. I think she said, you know, what woman would not admire a man this weather, it was in the heat of summer, who came home from work and did not require her to be, you know, slaving over the hot stove in the kitchen. (laughs) So, yeah, it was great. This was the birth of modern fasting. This is the reason we have therapeutic fasting today. It would have come about eventually, but with all of this interest, there were these people who, yes, who proposed marriage to him. 
a museum that proposed to stuff his body if he died, <laughs> you know, theaters that asked to pay him $1,000 a week to come and, you know, do the fast in their venue. But in addition to all of this, there also came interest from people who had said, hey, yeah, you know what? I have fasted as well. I had whatever it was, let's say psoriasis, or I had eczema, or I had asthma, and I fasted 10 days, or 20 days, or 30 days, or whatever it was, and it went away. So it's no surprise to me, not only that this guy can live, and that was the big news to most people, that he could live, but this actually heals this process of fasting. So the publicity that it generated was both the media circus, but also the beginning of the very long, slow process of people taking a look at this healing mechanism. Let me just interject one thing in here. We've been talking about these long fasts, and they can be very healing and and restorative. Most fasting doctors, I want to make clear, who I interviewed said, if you're in very good health and you want to try a fast of a, a week on your own, most fasting doctors are okay with that. However, most people aren't healthy. Most people are on medications. Most people uh, have one illness or another, and they caution very strongly. They were unanimous on this, fasting doctors in America and Germany, whoever I spoke with and wherever I read, you should be fasting under the medical supervision of someone experienced in supervising fasts. Yes. I had assumed that should go without saying, but I think especially in our modern age where so many Americans and people around the world are on various medications or overweight or obese, etc., it makes absolute sense and is indeed prudent to check with a medical professional, to check with your doctor before you undergo something like this. Absolutely. But talking about doctors, back in the time of Tanner and Dr. William Hammond, who was, quote unquote, a conventional doctor at the time, they didn't necessarily have much more knowledge than the, quote unquote, eclectic doctors of the time. What was stunning was, as you were kind of cataloging all these different kind of doctors throughout modern American history or modern European history who were coming across fasting or doubting it, etc., what was astonishing was how even recently, within the last 200 years, doctors, along with the rest of humanity, knew so little about the human body and how to treat it. And that was really, truly stunning. And we can, we, can, we can get to the unfortunate death of our first American president shortly, but that was really a shocking takeaway from the book. Yeah, it was for me too. You know, I'm not a historian, I'm a journalist, but one of the joys of getting to do work like this is I get to go read a bunch of, you know, historians who have done really deep work. And I quote a couple in the book. One of them said, for 2,400 years, he was speaking from the time of uh, Hippocrates, which is what most people date the birth of modern medicine to, you know, about 400 years before Christ. He said, for 2,400 years since then, people have believed that their doctors have been doing them more good than harm. For 2,300 years, they have been wrong. This was not an outlier view. This is, I think, a very common view by those who have looked at the record. And and the reason, of course, makes sense. There was, for the very longest time, until only a few hundred years ago, a taboo on dissection. Mm. So doctors, scientists could not look inside the body. So they concocted all of these crazy theories, the most prominent one of which was humoralism, which was that the body has these four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, and that health derived from keeping them all in balance and sickness came when they got out of balance. So you had to do all these things to keep them in balance. And that's where the bloodletting came from. That's where purgatives came from, which is, you know, giving you diarrhea. That's where emetics came from, making you throw up, blistering you to, you know, draw out your bad humors. And these practices, which, you know, got started a couple thousand years ago, were amazingly persistent. So much so that modern medicine 
doesn't really date until 1865, which is when Joseph Lister in the UK set into practice his um, principles of antisepsis, which is to say using antiseptic substances to keep infections from occurring in open wounds. It was the first time you could have a surgery and have any real chance of not dying of infection. Before that time, doctors pretty much almost certainly did you more harm than good. By about 1865, I think the consensus is it was about a 50-50 chance. If you called a doctor in, they might be able to do something for you, and they you know, might be able to do something harmful to you. But it wasn't until, and this was the big surprise for me, it wasn't until the 1930s that medicine made its next big advance. There were some advances in you know, public health, like cleaning up the sanitation in cities that led to increased life expectancy and so on. But that's not a medical advance, right? That's just a public works kind of thing. As far as doctors actually coming up with useful medicines, they don't appear until the first antibiotics, the sulfonamides in the 1930s, which was followed rapidly by penicillin. In that period, between 1865 and almost the start of the Second World War, that was the period where fasting, modern therapeutic fasting, thanks to Henry Tanner's fast in New York in 1880, really began to grow. And slowly, it took decades, but slowly over the decades, more and more people started noticing that fasting could do some good. And this was a time when you know, doctors did not have a cure for diabetes. Doctors did not have a cure for childhood epilepsy, but fasting did. Fasting could reverse those diseases. It was a time when medicine could have gone an entirely different direction and realized that there was some real power here in the body to heal itself, and they could have grabbed that and run with it and gone, you know, created essentially a whole new medicine. They didn't, because what does that do? Well, if you're saying that the body can heal itself if we just get out of its way, because the basic process here, and we can go in more to this if you want, but the basic process is when you take food away, your body is freed of all the processing of those nutrients. And when it's freed of that processing, this almost miraculous, I hate to overhype it, but to me, I really do still sort of feel the miraculous power of it. All this almost miraculous thing occurs where your body initiates repair and restoration mechanisms that otherwise it's not doing. Your body is doing it, right? It's not a doctor doing it. The doctor hasn't given you a pill. The doctor hasn't, he's just told you to, you know, stop eating, drink plenty of water and rest. And your body takes care of the rest. And well, it's obviously hard for doctors to make money under that model. It also took away this idea that had developed across the course of the 19th century of the doctor as a heroic figure. There was even a branch of medicine. Heroic medicine, yeah. Called heroic medicine, exactly. Unbelievable. And the idea with heroic medicine was bleed these patients even to unconsciousness. If we need to bleed them to, you know, set their body in balance, we need to, you know, put leeches on them, we need to blister them because heroic measures are called for. And this figure we call the doctor is the hero of this story not the patient. You mentioned in your book, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and served as Surgeon General under George Washington in the Revolutionary War. You're quoting him. He had urged doctors to, quote, summon the courage to bleed patients even to unconsciousness and to slosh their innards with calomel until they drooled. This next part's so key, Steve. Every time a patient didn't die, his ideas were vindicated. Exactly. <laughs> we look back at that now and it's like, you're basically bleeding someone to death. And every time that patient survives you bleeding them to death, you get proven right. 
Yeah, that was what the scientific method amounted to. And one of the most interesting things to me about that whole story about this you know, father of heroic medicine, he was basically a humane and enlightened physician. He was someone who advocated free healthcare for the poor. In an age where the mentally ill were treated horridly, he treated them with great humanity. Uh, he founded you know, several schools of learning, including the one he taught at, which was the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. Here was someone who was very enlightened, but just had no idea about the scientific method. None. And what finally undid Rush, he was gone from the scene then, but what finally undid Rushism and sort of started to chip away at heroic medicine was in the, at the late 18th century and the start of the 19th century, the placebo effect was discovered mm. and proven, and statistics were brought to bear on medical analysis. So, for example, if you had an outbreak of yellow fever in Philadelphia, statistics could show that those who were attended by doctors did no better than those who didn't have doctors at all and sometimes did worse. So, the placebo effect and the statistics over the course of the early 19th century led some pretty smart doctors like Oliver Wendell Holmes, the poet who eventually headed Harvard Medical School, to say, most of what we're learning here is bunk. This is garbage. <laughs> What's interesting is they could not take the next step. The next step is, mm. if we are harming patients with what we're doing, is there something else out there that might help patients who we can't help anyway? And there was. At the same time, many doctors, very ordinary doctors who I discuss in the book, you know, stumbled upon fasting because they tried to treat a patient. And the patient said, no, I don't want any treatment. And the patient would get better. And they, the more perceptive of these doctors would say, well, wait a minute. I was told that he wouldn't get better. How did he get better? Simply by resting, not eating, and drinking water. So a theory and practice of fasting was developing alongside this sort of unmasking of the fraud that was medicine at this point. But doctors absolutely refused to seize it partly because it was a threat to their income, yeah. partly because it was a threat to their ego, partly because it was a threat to what they had been taught about the body in medical schools. And then, you know, now we live in an era, of course, I'm not trying to trash all conventional medicine. We live in an era where conventional medicine can do a lot of good. But my point is, is that these attitudes of doctors looking down on fasting were so deeply ingrained in an era where they had no justification that by the time we got to the point where medicine really was doing some good, they couldn't even, you know, see fasting for what it was. And, and many doctors, I would say most still can't. Yeah, it's interesting because I sympathize with the doctors then and now who might be wary of something like fasting, because again, like you said, even the ones who, and I would believe most doctors are motivated to do good, not by things like profit, et cetera, but you can factor those elements in as well. But even just having to come to terms with the cognitive dissonance that would be caused by having to wrestle with the idea that, wait, some of the things that I've been taught, whether they were 200 years ago and just blatantly incorrect, even though they didn't know it at the time, and even today, where, like you said, medicine has come a long way, and you know, this is not an anti-medicine or anti-medical field episode, but it's just interesting to see how even in 2022, we still in many ways seem to be living in the echoes of the tradition of heroic medicine. The idea being that unless you are actively doing something, then you are doing nothing, rather than understanding that sometimes to do nothing is to do something. 
I want to like use a, I think a relatable metaphor to what you were saying earlier about how sometimes when the body doesn't have to focus on processing nutrients, it can focus on repairing itself. Uh, you know, I used to, <laughs> I used to be a barista. I promise this metaphor will hopefully hold <laughs> back about 20 years ago. I was working at Starbucks, right? And I worked at an incredibly busy Starbucks. Um, it was at the intersection of a couple different freeways in Northern California and also a gigantic movieplex that had just recently opened up. I grew up in Pleasanton. This was in um, a place called Hacienda Crossings. It was this huge shopping center that also had like an IMAX and 20 movie screens. And there were two intersecting super popular highways. So we were almost always slammed. And every time a movie would get out, we'd get a line out the door. It was one of the busiest Starbucks in the area. And to this day, one of the busiest that I've ever seen. Now, what would happen over time is as myself and the other baristas just became inundated with orders, we were having to make frappuccinos and cappuccinos and lattes and coffees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that over time, our workspace would become dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And then it was only in those moments, right, in which we had a brief reprieve from having to make drinks and we had an hour, if we were lucky, to actually look around and clean our workstation was when we had the opportunity to clean it. But when we were so occupied with making drinks for, you know, waiting customers, we had no way to just focus on the fact that, oh, hey, the area where I'm making coffee has gotten kind of filthy because I haven't had the chance to actually clean it. And it seems, again, I'm using a, uh, a rather blunt metaphor here, it seems like the body kind of operates in the same way. If you give it time to repair itself, to clean the barista workspace, if you will, it will use that time wisely. I think that's a fantastic metaphor. I think it's exactly right. And let me give you just one example of that. So we've been talking about prolonged fasting, fasting in multiple days for, for most of this episode. But there's also, as I mentioned, daily fasting, which is these forms of fasting, you often hear numbers with 18-6 fasting, for instance. People often call it intermittent fasting. So uh, you go 18 hours a night without food, and you eat all your food during a six-hour window. There have been some very good studies in the last few years on this. And some of these studies have looked at some of these cleaning up the barista's workstation that you're talking about. <laughs> I'll give you one example. There was one study where they had these ordinary people do this kind of eating, eating within a six-hour window, starting in the morning and ending in the early afternoon, and then looked at something called autophagy. People did this for only four days. It wasn't like they were on this for four years or four months or four weeks. It was just, what if we just put people on this very modest form of fasting for four days. And then we look at autophagy. Autophagy is, uh, the word is derived from the Greek roots for eating the self. It's the form of cellular recycling that our body uses. Fairly newly discovered, uh, just won the Nobel Prize a few years ago by a Japanese scientist who did some work on this. And what happens in autophagy is your body's a machine and the parts are wearing out all the time and need to be replaced. So there are a couple of ways you can do it. If a cell just gets too old, your body can have programmed cell death and just kill the cell off. But a way that it seems to prefer is if you have little damaged things inside the cell, it will build a vat around these damaged, this, your cell, your own cell will build kind of a little vat around these damaged parts. It'll pour in acid. The acid will dissolve the parts into its constituents. And then these constituent little components will be sent off to make new parts elsewhere. That's all that autophagy is. It's taking the old damaged stuff, breaking it down, and turning it into the fodder for new healthy stuff. The more autophagy you've got, so far as we can tell, the healthier you are going to be because you are cleaning up that workstation that you're talking about. 
We know that exercise, for instance, increases autophagy a little bit, not a ton. We know your body is doing autophagy all the time, but what the scientists have found is when you give it a rest, and again, we're talking four days of just narrowing your eating window to six hours early in the day, they found that autophagy increased by 22%. So you're getting one-fifth to almost one-quarter more repairs than you ordinarily would. And this is only one form of repair. When they go and they look for how many more antioxidants are made, you know, we've heard about free radicals that our body creates from its various processes and those oxidize things in your bodies. You can think of that as rusting your body, right? When your car gets a scratch and it gets rust, that's because it's been oxidized. That happens inside your cells too. Well, guess what? Oxidation also increases uh, when we do fasting. And, you know, you can go down a list of about a dozen things like this that have been studied inside the cells. And that is what is happening. And that is why if someone has, let's say, rheumatoid arthritis and fasts for a week and then goes on a plant-based diet, their rheumatoid arthritis gets better. They have fewer swollen and stiff joints. They have more grip strength. They have less pain in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. It's because of these cellular repair processes that are going on. It seems then that one could draw a straight line between the phenomenon of autophagy and the increased lifespan that is noted in mice. Is that correct? Well, it's only one of the mechanisms, and that's the brilliant thing about fasting. It influences so very, very many mechanisms, and it's not just autophagy. So I'll give you an example. Some of the best work was done on this, is being done on this, by a scientist named Walter Longo at the University of Southern California. And Longo started off studying yeast, and what he found was when he starved his yeast, fed them normally for a short period, and then starved them Yeast live mostly on glucose, took away their glucose, they lived twice as long. You know, never fed them again, basically starved them to death, yet they lived twice as long. And when he went poking around to find out, well, what is the mechanism behind this? It wasn't just autophagy. What he found was that there were nutrient sensing genetic pathways. So, you know, parts of the yeast cell, the yeast is a one cell organism. Parts of the yeast could sense, oh, there's glucose coming in, or there are amino acids coming in, uh, the building blocks of proteins. So there'd be a glucose-sensing pathway and a protein-sensing pathway. And when those nutrients were not coming in, the pathways shut down or turned on other things inside the yeast and not just autophagy. One of them, for example, was he found a couple of what are called messenger proteins. These messenger proteins were known as MSN2 and MSN4. What they did was, though, was far more than messaging. When they got the message that there's no glucose coming in, for instance, they would turn on or off 100 genes downstream to them that initiated all kinds of repairs to damage they had already sustained or did various processes that would protect them from future damage. So he would uh, create yeast that had these pathways activated or deactivated appropriately, and then he would, for instance, subject them to extreme heat. And he would see that these fasted yeast, when given extreme heat, would create essentially antifreeze to keep themselves from freezing. They would create these heat shock proteins also that would repair the heat that had damage that they had sustained. If he subjected them to extreme cold, they would turn on this process that would create a sugar called trehalose that the yeast would then burn to keep warm. If he bathed the yeast in hydrogen peroxide, which would create all this oxidative damage, they would create antioxidants 
that would um, repair the damage that had been done to their various parts and their DNA and so on. So yes, autophagy is one of the things that's going on. All these other things are going on, and we have almost all these same processes in our bodies that he was discovering in yeast, and they have been found to occur in higher organisms, whether it's mice or rats or fruit flies or worms or humans. So it's a vast kind of synthesis of a ton of repairs that are going on that seems to make fasting so potent at reversing some diseases and hopefully protecting from other diseases. Yeah. And I would imagine that one could draw a straight line or at least a slightly squiggly one from the resistances that the yeast had to the various forms of, you know, fire and ice, et cetera, to how fasting improves how the body reacts to chemotherapy, right? Exactly. You know, Walter Longo, again, this USC professor is the one who's done most of the pioneering work on this. And what he discovered was there's this intricate dance between the nutrients that we're getting and growth. So, you know, there's a survival advantage evolutionarily to get more nutrients and grow quicker. You can, you know, reach a reproductive age faster, and that gives you a bigger chance of passing in your genes. But it turns out if you grow more slowly for most organisms, one, you are giving yourself a chance to do repairs of the kinds that we've been talking about. But two, you also shut down the growth processes for things that can hurt you. And cancer is one of those. Cancer hijacks our growth system. One of the pathways that it hijacks is called IGF-1, which is insulin-like growth factor one, uh, which cells use to divide and grow. Well, cancer loves that, so it hijacks the IGF-1 pathway. We know the result grows like crazy uh, if it's not stopped in some way. What Walter Longo found was fasting not only can tamper down that IGF-1 pathway, it can slow it down so cancer has a harder time growing. Usually it can find another way, but it's, it's not its preferred way, so it makes it very uh, difficult for cancer to expand as rapidly as it could. But not only that, the truly exciting thing, you, as you say, is when you combine it with chemotherapy, radiation, or immunotherapy. So when you do chemotherapy, chemotherapy is just a poison, right? It's a poison, and its problem is, while it will poison the cancer, and if you can give a high enough dose, it can kill the cancer, it can also poison and kill the healthy cells. Well, what he found was when he took food away from cancer patients, first in mice, but eventually in humans as well, the healthy cells basically went into this repair and protect mode. They turned their back on any inputs because they weren't interested in getting anything from the body if nutrients and so on weren't coming in. And they spent their time licking their wounds and doing the sorts of repairs that we have been talking about. The cancer cells, however, they wanted to grow at all costs. That's the mission. That's the definition of a cancer cell is grow, grow, grow. So you could dump a whole bunch of chemotherapy into a fasting patient end up hurting the patient less, keeping the healthy cells uh, healthy and not being affected by the chemo, and hurt the cancer more. And these human trials are in early stages right now, but what they have found is what patients who fast during their chemotherapy have almost universally reported is they have less nausea, they don't vomit as much, uh, they have fewer headaches, they have less fatigue. In general, they just feel miles better than people who have chemotherapy when they're not fasting. We don't know for certain how much it kills cancer more, or even if it does, but early trials suggest at a minimum it's not hurting the uh, cancer-fighting effects of the chemo. So what 
later, you know, ongoing trials, uh, we hope will show is that um, you can give more chemo without hurting the patient and killing more of the cancer. But that remains to be determined. It does the, definitely work that way in lab animals, and that's the promising thing. Uh, and the fact that the side effects of chemo uh, with fasting uh, work similar to the way it works in lab animals give a lot of hope for it will also have similar cancer-fighting effects as well. Before we wrap up in the present, I want to just bounce briefly back to the past. Why exactly was it that fasting began to gain popularity with Henry Tanner in you know the late 1870s and then into the 1880s and beyond, rather than someone like Edward Miller, who in 1797 co-founded the country's first medical journal, or Isaac Jennings in 1815? You go into some detail about how both of these doctors at the time had near miraculous either personal experiences with fasting or saw a lot of fantastic results from their patients. What I'm struggling with is, especially with the case of Edward Miller, right, who was one of three doctors who co-founded America's first medical journal, why was it not then that fasting got a fair shake? Why was it almost 100 years later with Tanner? Was it just that there was so much media surrounding the event with Tanner that it was impossible to ignore? Why didn't it happen earlier? Some of it does have to do just with the means of communication having spread. So, you know, the world as a whole only had a handful of medical journals and communication, you know, in the form of newspapers and monthly or weekly magazines, all that. That was pretty rudimentary at the time you're talking about with those earlier doctors at the start of the 19th century. So, yeah, a piece of it is absolutely just that the message got out in a massive way that it never had before. But I think a piece of it as well was, you see across the 19th century, and it's a very, very slow process, the start of the scientific method being applied to medicine in a slightly more rigorous way. It still wasn't rigorous even by the end of the century, but you could see it happening little by little by little. And so, you know, you had people whose, for lack of a better way of saying it, whose minds were just thinking more scientifically. And so this was still empiricism, which is to say, just looking at what you see before you and making judgments based on that. But if you have someone who's fasted 40 days in front of a crowd with a group of watchers, you know, checking him 24 hours a day, making sure he's not eating any food, and not only does he not die, but he seems just as healthy by the end of it, practically, as he did at the start, you have to start questioning your assumptions. But to be able to question your assumptions about what does it mean that we don't eat? What is the effect of not eating? You have to be scientifically minded. It's a bit of a, a vague answer to your question, but I think it's probably about the best answer we've got. Well, I suppose it'll have to do for now, Steve. <laughs> okay, so as we begin to wrap out, and I really have so appreciated your time, your newest book, which I know we're recording a bit earlier, but when this episode will release, it comes out today. It's such a fascinating read, and it's such a wonderful exploration of history and stories and anecdotes and research that really comes together into a cohesive whole. And for a book that's over 400 pages, it is a super brisk and really entertaining read. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for sharing it with me. And thank you so much for your time. I want to kind of begin to wrap us up with a story that you tell at the beginning of the book, because it's such an impactful one. And it's the story of Yvonne Vielman, whose father died of lung cancer at 57, 10 years after his death, when she was only 42 years old. And that's only three years older than I am. 
she was diagnosed with cancer as well, stage three follicular lymphoma, one, quote, that attacks the white blood cells of the lymphatic system, the network of vessels and organs whose dual duty is to fight disease and rid the body of waste. Vielman's tumors were in her lymph nodes. The bad news was that because the lymphoma was in both the upper and lower parts of Vielman's torso and on both the left and right sides, it had to be considered advanced, stage three out of four. Worse, there was no cure, end quote. I would love for you to share with us her story and how she came to meet Dr. Alan Goldhammer and end up at True North in Santa Rosa and the research that they're doing and the work that they're doing, which ties in, I think, really well with what you've been saying earlier about how fasting alone can't be the cure-all, that a plant-based diet also has a huge impact on how healthy we are. Yeah, so Yvonne Vielman lived uh, in the suburbs of San Francisco, uh, and she got this cancer diagnosis, which, as you say, is a terminal diagnosis. There was no cure. There still is no cure. This was about a decade ago when she first got her diagnosis. She had previously, because her father had died of cancer and because she was very concerned about her own health, and because she, as we discussed at the start of this episode, was like a lot of us putting on a pound or two a year and finding herself overweight and on the border of obese, she had decided to look into how to become healthier. And she came across this weird sounding clinic in Santa Rosa, California, which is about an hour and a half north of San Francisco, whose doctors basically had two main messages. And one was that the majority of the diseases that we suffer from in abundance are caused by our diet. And if we would switch to a diet of minimally processed plants, many of the diseases would go away entirely. The ones that wouldn't would often improve. If you wanted the second part of the message, if you wanted to enhance, if you wanted to have a faster journey toward health, you could kickstart those repair processes that a plant-based diet initiates with a fast. And they were particularly doing prolonged water-only fasting. So fasting for anywhere from seven to they do as many as 40 days there. So she goes up and she meets with the doctors and she doesn't think at this point in her life that she needs to fast, but the science that they are citing makes sense to her. I mean, they've got a lot of studies to back them up. And so she starts going down a healthier road of, uh, you know, getting some of the processed crap and some of the animal products uh, out of her diet and so on. A couple of years later, when she gets this cancer diagnosis, her doctor tells her there's no cure, there's nothing to do. Chemotherapy at this stage does more harm than good, maybe towards the very end. We might talk about that or radiation or something. So she walks out of her oncologist's office and says, well, the heck with that. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to True North and I'm going to fast. So she does. She goes back there. She plans on a fast of two weeks. She gets to talking with one of the patients there. Now, these clinics, these fasting clinics, are just swirling with stories of people who came in with blood pressure of 180 over 120, fasted a couple weeks, and it was down to 120 over 80. Or they came in with fibromyalgia, couldn't walk more than three steps, and by the time they left at the end of their four-week fast, they were doing yoga and walking a mile and a half. And, you know, all these conditions that were being cured, and she gets to talking with another patient who had had a head injury and a chronic murderous migraine for, I don't think it was a decade and a half, who said, yeah, my migraine finally went away, didn't go away until the third week of my fast. So she starts thinking about her two little boys at home and how she's supposed to be, the doctors had said, you know, the bad news is it's terminal, your cancer. The good news is it's a slow 
disease, a slow progression. So you might get 20 years. So she starts thinking about the fact that if she's lucky, she'll be dead at 62 and she, she won't be able to see her kids grow up and get married. And anyway, to make a long story short, she decides to fast longer. And about two or so weeks into her fast, her tumors, which she had in her groin and her armpits, start shrinking. Day by day, they shrink a little more, a little more, a little more, until by the time she's done with her fast, after about three weeks, they're gone. She had had a surgery a couple years before she got her cancer, and so she had scans of the areas relative to that. It was a bladder surgery, so she had scans in that area that showed that there had been no cancer there, and then after she got her diagnosis, there were scans showing there was cancer there. And the doctors at True North said to her, well, if you can go back to your doctors and get them to give you scans that will actually verify that your cancer is actually gone, it's not just lurking, you know, subpalpably, lurking below the skin and we just can't feel it, you know. If you can get that detected with a scan, we think we can publish your case in a high-impact medical journal. And to make a long story short, after much struggle with her oncologist, who really didn't want to believe that uh, her cancer had been sent into remission by her fast, she did get these scans. They did get the doctors at True North, which is, you had mentioned Alan Goldhammer. He's the founder of True North um, and is a chiropractor who has probably fasted, I don't know, 15,000 or so patients over the last, oh, three and a half decades. He and his colleagues um, sent this off to the British Medical Journal, this case study, and did get it published uh, in one of the most you know, high-impact medical journals uh, in the world. So that's all fantastic. Here's the thing. Follicular lymphoma often goes into what's called spontaneous remission. That means it just goes away on its own for a little period. And so one of the reasons her doctor didn't want to give her scans was he said, look, this is just a spontaneous remission. We don't need to subject your body to more radiation uh, by scanning it. Your disease is going to come back. Spontaneous remissions in follicular lymphoma tend to go away after a couple of years. So a couple of years later, she had more scans. The disease was still gone. A couple of years after that, more scans, still gone. So Goldhammer and colleagues at True North sent off an update on her case to the British Medical Journal. An interesting thing happened there, and this is, uh, goes back to our earlier discussion about you know doctors having a very hard time believing in the facts before their eyes when the facts are fasting has healed something, to all appearances anyway. Medical journals will send out you know, articles that you submit to peer reviewers, you know, other people who are scientists or doctors who have some expertise, and they say, yes, I think this should be published, or I think it shouldn't be. There were two peer reviewers for this second, you know, follow-up case study. One of them said, yeah, publish this, it's solid. The other one said, no, the cancer of Yvonne Bielman has to just have somehow been in some really freaky, long, you know, spontaneous remission. Didn't have any justification for that. Spontaneous remissions don't typically last this long. Didn't have any reason why he thought the fasting couldn't do it. Just said it couldn't possibly be fasting. That's preposterous. The editor of the journal held the tie-breaking vote and went ahead and published the paper anyway. So that was news that was also out there in the scientific community that this follicular lymphoma still seemed to be kept at bay by her fast and, I should say, by going on a diet of minimally processed plants after that. And I'm happy to report I heard from Yvonne Vielman, you know, just a couple months ago, and it's, I don't know what it is now, about 10 years or so since her initial cancer diagnosis, and it is still in remission. So her latest scans came back clean. So the way that good science is supposed to work is that these cases like this get documented 
And then other cases, you know, other people with follicular lymphoma try fasting as well, and that has indeed happened. They are working with other follicular lymphoma patients at True North as well, uh, including one in stage four whose reversal, I didn't go into complete remission, but his reversal during his fast of his stage four, which is the worst follicular lymphoma, was so incredible, so dramatic that his oncologist, who had been strongly opposed to his going to True North and fasting for this, said, why don't you go back and fast another 40 days, his first fast had been 40 days, and see if it drives it even further into remission. So these are good things that are happening, but the way that the science should really work if our scientific and medical system were working well is you have these convincing case reports and then you say, okay, now what we really need to prove this or disprove this is a randomized controlled trial where we take people doing the standard treatment, which is basically nothing for follicular lymphoma. We put them in one group and then we have people who we you know, randomize to go to a place like True North and fast for some period of time. And then we actually see, then we have some a real you know, controllable experiment that will give us the data we need to say yes or no, this is absolutely working or it's not, or maybe it's sort of working. Unfortunately, the entities that control funding for most of our medical research tends to be pharmaceutical companies, tends to be medical device companies, or tends to be the governments and universities who are increasingly, you know, beholden, captured in in many respects by those companies. So there's very little market incentive. There's very little profit reason to do this. You can't make a ton of money off of fasting. The only reason to do it is it would help patients with a disease that is otherwise incurable. And Alan Goldhammer hopes to be able to get those trials together someday, but it's a real long shot for a guy who runs a fasting clinic and isn't, I don't know, a professor at Harvard or, you know, an executive at a biopharmaceutical company. You know, we hear so many stories about how the incentives within the pharmaceutical industry and in part the medical industry as a whole are misaligned oftentimes with treating patients, at least in treating them with all the available options. And I think that it's so disheartening to hear that the powers that be oftentimes are so resistant to fasting because you can't patent nothing. Like you, you can't patent someone doing absolutely nothing. And you certainly can't sell nothing. And again, that's exactly what fasting, it's the doing of nothing. I mean, aside from drinking water, but it's so disheartening to hear. The final question to tie us into that, Steve, and again, thank you so much for your time today is based on your research for this book and your discussions with doctors and historians and practitioners of fasting like Dr. Goldhammer and others, colleagues and loved ones, do you think that fasting, either long-term, intermittent, or otherwise, actually has a chance of taking hold in America and around the world? Do you believe that we can overcome our ongoing addiction to quote-unquote heroic medicine, right? Our need to proactively take something or do something, and finally begin to embrace the oldest cure in the world, doing nothing at all. Where do you think in our modern relationship with fasting now and moving forward, do you see us going next? I do see a hope that fasting will be adopted. I don't see much hope that it will be widely adopted. It is so counterintuitive to so many people. But the reason I do think that there is a hope is because more and more scientists are becoming convinced of it. And science doesn't always translate into practice in the wider society. But where a lot of the interest in the scientific field, for instance, is in this use of using fasting 
or fasting mimicking diets, which are very, very low calorie diets of, you know, a couple hundred calories a day that mimic the effects, many of the effects of fasting. Using these uh, tools with, say, chemotherapy to defeat cancer. And what is hopeful about it is, is that, you know, you used to hear from oncologists, well, we can't do anything crazy like this because there's no science to prove it. And certainly when I wrote the article in Harper's that kicked all this off for me more than a decade ago, that was the line. And it's still a very, very, very common line among oncologists. But now the science is growing and more and more oncologists are saying, yeah, you know what? There may actually be something here. Let's experiment with this. And all it takes, right, is for one person to say to another person, I'm talking just the people on the street, the casual conversation over the water cooler with your family. Yeah, you know, so-and-so had cancer, did chemotherapy, did this weird fasting thing while they were doing it, didn't have any side effects, you know, didn't have the nausea, didn't have the vomiting, didn't have, you know, these, these sorts of things. And guess what? Their cancer has been in remission for eight years. Those sorts of stories are growing, and the more they're growing the more people are willing to believe in fasting. And even in a much more casual way, you know, one of the reasons that so-called intermittent fasting, this daily fasting that I've been talking about, has grown so widely is people do it and they feel great. I eat in a six-hour window from morning to mid-afternoon most days. I feel better than I ever have in my life. I thought it was insane to, what, I'm not going to eat, you know, at the normal dinner time. That's my favorite time of day. Like, I I loved midnight snacks. You know, I loved eating. (laughs) But I feel so much better. And, you know, I hear over and over from people like yourself who say, well, you know, I tried this fasting. It was really bizarre. I couldn't believe it was going to do anything for me. My depression went away or I have way more energy. So you can't stuff that back in the box. Like that information is now out. And although, you know, the vast majority of people may not adopt it, it's there for those who are interested and willing to. And I think increasingly we'll see a little bit more of that each year as time goes by. Yes, yes. I mean, especially in the age of the internet, the information is just going to travel faster than ever before. This is unbelievable. I just glanced at the clock. I can't believe we've been talking for about two hours because like your book, Steve, this enlightening and fun conversation certainly went by fast. I couldn't resist a, I couldn't resist a pun there. But <laughs> Well, I, I've enjoyed it too, which is saying something for a writer who uh, is not used to speaking for two hours at a stretch. I'm used to listening to my interviewees speak for that long. So it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Of course. And you could have fooled me. This was so great. Thank you again. And yeah, to anyone listening to this conversation, highly recommend Steve's book. And if you can find his Harper's essay as well, if you'd like a primer, highly recommend that as well. So thank you again, Steve, for your time. Thanks. Enjoyed it.